Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The coronavirus pandemic has raised numerous religious liberty concerns. Patients in hospitals and residents in assisted care facilities have been routinely denied access to spiritual care, including the sacraments, due to lockdowns imposed to try to curb the virus. In addition, state and local governments have banned churches and other houses of worship from holding religious services, or have severely restricted the number of people who can attend these services. Joining me today is Michael Vaca, Director of Ministry, Bioethics, and Member Experience at the Christ Medicus Foundation. In the first of a two-part interview, Michael addresses these religious liberty concerns by drawing upon the work of the newly formed Healthcare Civil Rights Task Force, as well as its November 2020 statement, Defending the Fundamental Dignity and Healthcare Civil Rights of All. Michael Vaca, welcome to our Bioethics On Air podcast. Joe, thank you so much for having me on. Great to have you on. So, Michael, most of our guests, or excuse me, most of our listeners know that when we have a new guest on the podcast, I always ask them this question to start off with. So, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education and work experience leading up to your present position at the Christ Medicus Foundation. Sure. So, I grew up in Michigan. I went to Hillsdale College and studied political philosophy and English literature. So I have a Bachelor of Arts in those two subjects. I then went to Ave Maria School of Law and graduated in 2010 with a, with a Juris Doctorate. I then served as a legal advisor uh, for the Pontifical Council for the Family in Rome for two years, uh, which was basically a number of different things, uh, but the chief thing I was doing was writing amicus curiae briefs to help the church to advocate for Catholic social teaching in other countries, also internally advising the church on different things going on with respect to international human rights, the dignity of the human person, uh, the culture of life, the protection of the family. Um, so I really had a really wonderful experience being able to internally serve the church uh, in a legal capacity. And then moving on from that, uh, I came back, I discerned, I was open, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to continue to use my law degree to serve you in your kingdom? And I began working with the Christ Medicus Foundation in 2014. Mm. So Michael, what is the Christ Medicus Foundation? So the Christ Medicus Foundation is a Catholic healthcare nonprofit uh, that seeks to protect religious freedom and the culture of life in healthcare. And so uh, there's really three components to that mission. One is policy work on both the federal and the state level to protect conscience rights, uh, to ensure that medical providers can practice medicine consistent with their faith. The second one is we work with clinics to basically help them to be sustainable so that they can stay independent and offer services to the public so they don't have to merge with the large healthcare systems and lose their autonomy. So we work with a lot of faith-based clinics. Um, we're working with the Jerome Lejeune Foundation right now yep. uh, to do 
uh, on some a clinic that they're opening up in the United States. Uh, we are working with, uh, we've worked with other clinics throughout the country, basically to try to help them, to promote them, to keep them sustainable and help them with their business practices. So that's the second uh, tier of what we do. The third one is that we operate a Christ-centered Catholic health sharing ministry. Now, Joe, for those who are not familiar with, with health sharing, it is an alternative to health insurance whereby Christian families come together and they um, essentially pool resources, uh, financial resources, uh, to help each other meet their medical needs. They also pray for one another. Uh, they, they really, in a sense, are, are empowered to take ownership of their health. We do this as an ecumenical partnership with Samaritan Ministries, and it's something that is available to uh, Christians nationwide throughout the country. Interesting. We were speaking briefly on air before we started recording, and I said, you know, I think we need to do a podcast just on a health sharing ministry. So maybe down the line, that's uh, we'll add that to the list of of podcasts we're going to do. So, so Michael, what uh, with, with that description of the Christ Medicus Foundation, what is your current position with the organization, and and what are your what are your responsibilities? Sure. So I am the director of Ministry Bioethics and Membership Experience. So. Um, Chiefly, what I do is uh, a number of things. Uh, the first one is I just recently completed training as a lay spiritual director. So I am able to, through the grace of God, uh, serve as a spiritual director for our members. It's a service that the Christ Medicus Foundation provides our members. Um, so right now we have um, a number of people that are regularly meeting for spiritual direction, and I'm I'm doing that work, you know, helping to draw them closer to Christ. So I have a training from the Avila Institute in the Heart of Christ. It's a two-year program to be a lay spiritual director. Uh, the second thing I do is I do the bioethics consults for the Christ Medicus Foundation. So you know, I'm currently going through the the NCBC program right now. Um, I went through a program uh, through Catholic Distance University and Catholic Healthcare Ethics. And so when people have questions, when uh, hospital systems and others, uh, Catholic organizations have questions about conscience, about religious freedom, about the dignity of the human person, about uh, whether they're cooperating in evil and to what degree, um, I handle a lot of those questions internally for Christ Medicus. And then the third uh, area that I work with is member services. So this is... Uh, people, when they get sick, when they get injured, when they need help, I educate them about the healthcare process. I accompany them. I pray with them. I support them. I connect them with the right resources to help them to really have a great experience uh, being part of this this Christ-centered community, sharing their healthcare costs, really strive to accompany people, to minister to them so that it's a different experience than insurance. They feel you know it's very personal we really strive to love people and care for them the way that Christ would. Yeah, interesting. A lot of you're wearing a lot of different hats, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. What is a typical day if there is such a thing? What is what does that look like for you? So, a typical day, I may speak to, uh, you know, fifty to sixty different uh, families that have uh, just to check in on them, to check in on their needs, to see how we could support them. I might do one or two spiritual direction sessions for one to two hours 
where I'm meeting with uh, members to really just help to draw them closer to the Lord. And then, uh, you know, maybe spending an hour and a half, two hours on policy, uh, different uh, issues that come up that we're advocating for either on the federal or the state level, um, working on specific cases that come up, uh, you know, people that are vulnerable, striving to help them as much as possible. So um, those three things, you know, would, would be the, the main uh, part of my day. Yeah. So I, you've kind of already answered this question, but uh, maybe address it a little more directly. How does your faith influence your work? Yeah. So, you know, you asked me, Joe, earlier about, you know, my background and and mm-hmm. and, and I have to say in all honesty that, you know, I, I see the, the providence of the Lord and in where I am right now and, and what I've done. I mean, I, I never... Uh, when I when I studied political philosophy and and literature and, and went to law school, I never anticipated working in a healthcare organization. Uh, I certainly never really contemplated bioethics or or uh, spiritual direction or anything like that. So, um, it, it you know the way that the Lord has worked with me has been uh, to give me a very unique background. Um, I have a lot of uh, background because of my work with Rome uh, in terms of what's going on on the international level with respect to the culture of life. Um, but then that is paired with now a pastoral orientation because of spiritual direction, as well as uh, a policy uh, because of my legal background, being able to engage in the policy issues, being able to really bring these things together, the spiritual, the legal, the pastoral, um, and really, uh, it's it's a very unique experience. I would say that my preeminent focus is upon uh, the dignity of the human person and drawing people close to the heart of Christ. So really what I feel called to do is to, to help to further that relationship so that uh, people can fulfill the vocation that Christ has for them and so that we can have a culture that respects uh, the dignity of every single human person. And that's really what I believe is meant by the culture of life is not just a culture of physical life, you know, a culture where we respect people's physical lives, that's important, but it's a culture of life in the, in the deeper sense of a culture where people are able to know who they are in Christ and be able to live that out. A culture where people are fully alive, body, mind, and soul, where they can truly uh, know their identity and live it fully. And that is something that you know, I feel very blessed to be a part of both on behalf of the Christ Medicus Foundation, but also just me personally and and the vocation that the Lord has granted uh, my wife and I. So important part of my vocation as well, I would say, and the most important part of my vocation uh, next to my faith in Christ is my marriage to my wife. Uh, we've been married for four years, and we really believe that the Lord is calling us to bring people close to his sacred heart and to, to have the same love. I know I'm called to have the same love for her as Christ has for us and to share that with others. And we really see our marriage as an opportunity to evangelize people, to draw them close to the divine physician. And so it's beautiful to to be able to, to, to enter fully into this vocation that the Lord has for us. And I'm pr- tremendously grateful. I recognize it's a gift. It's not anything that I've earned. It's something that 
the Lord has given as a gift. And so it's, it's really a privilege to be able to do this work. Yeah. Great answer. Great answer. All right. So let's move into the, the main topic of our discussion today. And I was wondering if you, we could start off by you telling us a little bit about the, the task force. So what is the Healthcare Civil Rights Task Force and why was it formed? Yeah. So the Healthcare Civil Rights Task Force is a task force of the Christ Medicus Foundation, and it was formed essentially for three reasons. One, it was formed to generally advocate for conscience and religious freedom. Um, so uh, you know, forming people's consciences, uh, making sure that people are aware of the fundamental natural and civil rights that we have and, and making sure that we're protecting those civil rights. So um, these civil rights include the right to visit with your loved ones, the right to receive access to the sacraments, um, the right to receive care, um, that people shouldn't be discriminated against because of their, uh, for any reason, really, um, uh, you know, whether it's because of, uh, whether it's because of their uh, disability. Unfortunately, we find that many people that have disabilities don't receive the medical care that they should. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's because of any other reason, people should receive the care that's appropriate, uh, physically, mentally, spiritually. So it's to form people's consciences with respect to the culture of life and the preservation of religious freedom. That's the first purpose. The second purpose is to advocate specifically for vulnerable patients that fall between the cracks. So recently, uh, we had a pastor that came to us uh, from Louisiana, and he uh, is completely unable to access uh, a nursing home and a hospital to administer last rites and to do anointing of the sick. So these patients are dying alone. Uh, they're not able to receive. They're not able to receive care, uh, spiritual care, uh, which which really is more important than the care of the body because uh, the soul is the foundation. It's the foundation of the body, and it's it's the principle of eternal life. And so, um, the fact that people can be denied that care and die alone is really a cruelty that's completely unjustified. And it's a violation of their fundamental right to receive spiritual nourishment. Uh, it's also a violation of the of the norm of the church, which is to provide care to the faithful. So uh, this is this is really problematic, and we strive to advocate for these people. We also advocate for people in situations of denial of care. We've had a number of people that have, even though they had a, a healthcare proxy, even though they had somebody to make medical decisions for them. They did everything that they could legally to protect their rights. Uh, They were uh, basically denied care that they were entitled to by a healthcare facility. And then, of course, one of the big issues during this COVID pandemic has been um, the right to visit with your loved ones in a, you know, if you're in a healthcare setting, uh, you have the right to to your family, you have the right to to clergy to be able to administer the sacraments to you, and it's not just a question of visit. Visitation itself, I would argue, is is a fundamental natural right. Uh, the right to see your loved ones part of what it means to be a human person, to be in relationship to others. But it's also a matter of of um, 
the medical care itself. Because what happens in these healthcare settings, Joe, as you as you know, I'm sure, is that uh, when people have visitors, those visitors serve as advocates for them. And so by denying visitation, they're also denying advocacy for these patients because there's nobody to to, to check in on them, to ask questions about the care that they're receiving, to make sure that, uh, that the patient is doing well. There's really no advocacy whatsoever um, if you exclude visitation. You isolate the person. It's very dehumanizing. And, and the third purpose of the task force is really to enhance the work of each of the participating organizations. So what we recognized is that uh, a lot of the work the Christ Medicus Foundation wants to do uh, is is related to the work that the National Catholic Bioethics Center does, that mm-hmm. the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network does, that Life Legal Defense Foundation does, that HALO, the Healthcare Advocacy and Leadership Organization does. And so uh, it makes eminent sense to really come together to collaborate, uh, to tap into the unity that we have in the body of Christ to say, how can we better help each other uh, to do this work, to really advocate, to restore a culture of life? Um, there's there's kind of duplication uh, where different organizations will do the same thing. And, and we thought, you know, we need more cooperation within the body of Christ. We need greater uh, ability to be able to assist one another, greater flexibility, better relationships. And so the the thought is to bring together these organizations in a spirit of solidarity that have the same fundamental mission. Um, we have a lot of, you know, we're very close as a task force. Um, I have many friends on the task force that I'm very close to, uh, including the president of, of NCBC, Joseph Meany, and I yep. are very close friends yep. uh, going back to when I worked in Rome, uh, you know, as well as uh, some of the other members of the task force that are doing incredible work for the Lord. And so uh, it's such a privilege to be able to work with them and help them. Not only is Christ Medicus, you know, doing the work that we've been called to do, but we're helping these other organizations uh, to be able to fulfill their mission and and together helping to create a culture of life. Yeah. Just a, a practical question for you. Is the, or are the services that you offer? So you mentioned a priest who contacted you um, who wasn't able to access a, a nursing home. Are the services you provide, are they exclusively for Christ Medicus members or could anybody contact you? No, it's for anyone. Uh, the, the task force uh, has a website and it's uh, healthcarecivilrights.org. And if you go to that website, uh, anybody uh, can can contact us. So, um, you know, and you can, uh, our contact information, they can contact any of the organizations respectively, but they can ta- also contact the task force itself. And so it just recently had another case came come in yesterday of a woman who uh, works at a, a long-term uh, care facility in the state of New York. And she's very concerned that uh, she will be mandated as a healthcare worker to take uh, this Moderna COVID vaccine. And she's not peaceful with it. She's prayed about it. Of course, the church says you can take it if, if, if there's a legitimate reason for doing so and you, your, your conscience is peaceful with it. But, but the issue with her, she's not peaceful with it. Um, She's concerned about the MRA technology, uh, mRNA technology. She's concerned about the fact that even though 
It wasn't derived from a fetal cell line. It was tested on the hex cell line, right. uh, which was from an aborted fetus. So she has legitimate concerns that, you know, a person of faith can say, uh, you know, I don't feel peaceful with this and that should be respected. Uh, you know, and, and the concern is that the state of New York is going to condition her job for both her and her husband are both um, healthcare workers. And uh, what that would mean for them is they would both lose their job uh, if they didn't take this vaccine. So that is a concern. So we're, we're working with, with people like in that situation to try and help them what can be done. All right. So let's move on to the, to the statement that the, uh, that the task force drafted. So the, the statement, again, the name of it is defending the fundamental dignity and healthcare civil rights of all. So, Michael, why was this statement written, and what is it that you want people to take away from it? Yeah, so this statement is intended to be a high-level articulation of uh, that there is a natural and civil right to religious freedom, what, where that's grounded, uh, which is it's, it's grounded in the First Amendment, but more fundamentally in the natural law. Mm-hmm. And, and then also to to give a little bit of detail as far as what that means, uh, to talk about the morality of lockdowns, which in many cases are not justified, and then to to really set forth a coherent, cohesive worldview so that people can understand these issues in light of the teaching of the church and uh, to really you know make sure that that people understand that, the right to religious freedom is not just a civil right. It's not just a right that's given to us by the government, because of course the government can give a right, they can take it away. It's a natural right. It's a right that comes from God in the in the language of the declaration. Uh, you know, it it is a a God-given right, right? It's it's something that predates civil society, something that can't be taken away. And so uh, it's making sure that people understand that and the consequences of that. Um, but chiefly with respect to the First Amendment, uh, it's you know to look at the language of the First Amendment. There's 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 two clauses with respect to uh, with respect to religion. The the first is the free exercise clause uh, that that you have the right to to exercise your faith, which isn't uh, just the freedom to worship. It's not just the freedom to worship in church, but it it's the the right to live your faith. Um, Meaning not only words but actions, and not just limited to to the church, but in your life, wherever you are, you have the right to live uh, consistent with your beliefs. Right, you have the yeah, right I to conscience. That's really, yeah, that's a really important thing to to to. Uh, I just want to emphasize that point because I think that is missed a lot in our society, and it, it's certainly. You know the world doesn't want uh, people to know that <laughs> this. You know that that's the correct interpretation of the First Amendment. There are a lot of people who will say, "Yeah, you have the right to do whatever you want within the four walls of your church, but don't bring that outside into the public square." And what you're saying is that that is absolutely not what the First Amendment is saying. Yeah, there is a concerted attempt towards the end of the Obama administration to change the messaging from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. Freedom of worship, right. and it's a very subtle thing that a lot of people didn't even pay attention to. But what the implication of that is is uh, you can do what you want in your church building. You can go, you can worship God, but the moment you set foot outside that door, you you no longer have conscience rights. You no longer have the right to live your faith. You have to comply with a whole different set of laws and rules, 
And even if it violates your conscience, even if it's opposed to your faith, you no longer have the right. And that is fundamentally inconsistent with uh, the principles this country was founded upon, and it's inconsistent with the natural moral law. Right. Which and we is saw that, we, that with the we saw that with the with the uh, contraception and sterilization coverage mandate, among other things. Right. Yeah, the transgender mandate, uh, yeah, which is increasingly problematic with the Bostock decision. Um, you know, we see this in a lot of different ways, but, but the language, what I want to point out, Joe, with the language of the first amendment is that, uh, the, the free exercise clause is there, which has been misinterpreted. And then there's the establishment clause, which, which was to say the original meaning of the establishment clause was, you know, uh, the United States is not going to prefer sectarian religion. They're not going to say, um, uh, Lutheranism or Catholicism or Methodism is the official religion of the United States. And you have to, uh, we're establishing that this is, because of course this was the case in Europe when the United States was founded, you know, if, if the King of England was, uh, was, uh, was of a particular religion, everybody who wasn't that of religion, uh, had a problem. Uh, they either converted or they were going to be persecuted. Uh, so there was no separation between church and state in the sense that, that we have in this country. Um, and that is, uh, that is the original meaning of the, of the establishment clause, but the courts, uh, going back years and years and years, and you see this even in the 1970s, um, have broadened the establishment clause to say that any time there is any type of, uh, correlation whatsoever between, um, between religion and the activity of the state, uh, that's the establishment of religion. You can't have prayer in school because that establishes a religion. Uh, you can't have public funding of Catholic organizations because that's an establishment of religion. Those are That's not the establishment of religion. That's the free exercise of religion. Uh, the establishment of religion is only meaning that you cannot have uh, – on you know on pain of law you can't require people to be part of one faith it doesn't mean that there is a separation uh, in fact the, the founders of this country would go on to say that you know chiefly washington and and jefferson and others that without religion you 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 can't have public morality and without public morality without virtue you can't have a free society. So they would actually say that religion is indispensable. And, and the proof of this is if you look at things like the Northwest Ordinance, uh, there was public funding for, for religious instruction uh, back in, in the founding generation. That's undeniable. So the idea that uh, there can't be <clears throat> public funding of, of religion, that there has to be an absolute separation between the state and religious practice uh, is completely unfounded. It's a radical, secular understanding of the human person that's in contrast to the founding of this country. And because of that broad, unjustified expansion of the Establishment Clause, it has restricted the Free Exercise Clause to the point now where many people don't even believe in free exercise anymore. They believe it's just uh, the freedom to worship, and even that is being curtailed. In certain cases, uh, you know, we see this during COVID, where you know you you have uh, casinos and 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 Home Depot and all kinds of commercial establishments that can operate at full capacity. Uh, but if you're a church, you know, ten people, fifteen people, half capacity, whatever it is, 
unjustified restrictions. And yet, if you look, you know, uh, Justice Alito talked about this in his Federalist Society speech. If you look at the language of the Constitution, there is no protection for casinos. There is no protection for for department stores. There's no protection for restaurants. There is protection for churches and religious freedom. And yet, despite the overt explicit protection in the text of the Constitution, in the natural moral law written in the human heart, uh, these religious uh, organizations, these uh, you know, they receive less protection. Religious people in general receive less protection for their faith. Than, than commercial interests. We've uh, discussed the the question about uh, churches, you know, and, and restricting religious worship. But uh, beyond that, um, specifically with regard to the coronavirus pandemic, how has religious liberty, uh, religious liberty rights, been violated? Yeah. So, you know, with respect to to COVID. Uh, one area that we've seen with respect to, to violations of, of liberty, violation of civil rights, as we mentioned earlier, was, was the lack of visitation. So mm-hmm. um, the idea that you know somebody gets admitted into a hospital for whatever reason, and, and the hospital then says, you can't see your spouse, can't see your children, uh, that you, your ability to see your loved ones uh, is completely in their power. Uh, they don't have the power to do that. That, that. The right to see your loved ones is a fundamental human right. They don't have the right to tell me that I can't see my wife. Uh, they don't have the right to see. Now, reasonable precautions, uh, you know, saying that uh, people should uh, comply with uh, certain safety protocols, that they can restrict the number of visitors uh, so t- to promote a, a clean sanitary environment, uh, that they can require you to wear a mask. Things like this are reasonable, and uh, they should be complied with. But these draconian restrictions, where they say you cannot visit your loved ones, you cannot see a priest, cannot visit with your spouse. Uh, I was just meeting with a family recently, uh, who uh, husband was with his wife, uh, who was very sick, and uh, towards the end of her life, the the healthcare facility asked him to leave. <laughs> said, 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 said uh, you know, can you step out, sir, for a few moments? This is the last moment. I mean, talk about callous disregard for the human person. This is the last moment that he has with his wife, the person that he loves the most in the world. And 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 in that precious moment when he could have been with her, they ask him to leave. Why did they ask him to leave? Did he say? You know, it was because uh, I I. I we don't know for certain why he was asked to leave, but my suspicion, Joe, is that he was asked to leave uh, because they wanted to take her off of uh, the ventilator, and they knew that he didn't agree with that decision. Hmm. Uh, and then they, and then, and then, and then he came back in the room, um, you know, and and she had already passed. So it, it's it's tragic that this 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 understanding of the human person that we used to take for granted that we're called to be in relationship with others. I mean, there's a theological grounding for this. We know that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a relationship. We are made in the image of God, and so we are called to be in union with others. We're called to be in relationship with others. It's a fundamental part of what it means to be a person, which is why, strictly speaking, in Catholic teaching, there is no such thing as an individual. 
because an individual uh, presupposes that uh, you're fully a person if you're isolated, and, and that teaching of the church actually would be that that you're not uh, really a person. To be a person means to be in communion by definition. Uh, that we are made to be in communion with God and to be in communion with others, and so uh, this this alienation of the human person is a hallmark of the culture of death. We're going to put you in an institution. We're going to change this hospital into a prison, and you're not going to be able to see your loved ones. You're not going to be able to communion with God. You're not going to be able to receive the sacraments. Uh, that that is completely unacceptable. From a moral perspective, from a theological understanding of the human person, uh, just quite frankly, from common decency, uh, it's cruel to force people to die alone, to isolate them from the people that they love, and and the idea that this is justified or you know this is just kind of a utilitarian pragmatic ethic. This is the price we have to pay uh, to protect people's physical health. Uh, again, it's it's an inversion of of the proper hierarchy. Uh, our physical life is important, but it's in service to our spiritual life. And there is a hierarchy, and 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 it's been reversed. And and according to the culture, the only thing that matters is physical life. And so, what this has resulted in is a very inhumane, cruel uh, culture of death. And they've they've imposed this in various different places. So we've seen issues with visitation. Um, we see this with respect to denial of care, as I mentioned in the case of disability. Um, one of the families I spoke to recently, um, uh, their, their mother was sick and had a disability when she got admitted into the emergency room, and they wanted her to receive treatment that she didn't receive. Uh, and there was basically the, the healthcare facility just said no no, we're not going to, we don't think that she's going to recover. We're not going to provide this treatment. Um, and that is, uh, again, it's a usurpation. Where does the, the healthcare facility get the right to decide who lives and who dies? Where do they get the right to decide who gets to visit their loved ones? Who gave them that right? Uh, they're usurping something that doesn't belong to them. And people will say that, well, it's the police powers of the state. No, the police powers of the state don't justify violating the natural law. People have a fundamental natural right that comes from God uh, to receive our Lord, to visit with their loved ones. Neither the federal nor the state government can take that away. And so we have to be very clear about that and very strong on that. Um, you know, we're not advocating people uh, to, you know, disobey just laws. We're not saying that people shouldn't be respectful of public health. Um, we're not saying that it's not legitimate to. Uh, impose certain common sense restrictions for the health and safety, the common good of society. But when these restrictions rise to the level of denying people visitation, spiritual care, then it becomes tyranny. Then it becomes uh, a perversion of the human person. Uh, and and it really becomes scary because there's a number of people right now, Joe, that uh, you know would sooner die at home than 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 even go to a healthcare facility to receive care because they're they're terrified, not without good cause, of being separated from their loved ones. Yeah, we've heard they're that terrified as well. of you know being denied access to care. At least if they're at home, they can receive care. They can um, you know, and hopefully if they are in a healthcare facility, it's temporary, and then they get released. But um, you know, the idea that 
as soon as you set foot in a hospital, you lose your autonomy, your right to visit with your loved ones, your right to receive spiritual nourishment uh, is really morally unacceptable. And, and it's creating a society where uh, healthcare is not uh, in service to the human person the way that it should be. This concludes part one of our interview with Michael Vaca. In part two, Michael explains how the U.S. courts have addressed religious liberty challenges raised during the pandemic and how we can balance religious liberty with public safety. He also discusses how the incoming Biden administration will likely impact the work of the Christ Medicus Foundation and the Catholic Church as a whole. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on bioethics on air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.